Welcome to panel four of today's monetary conference. My name is Judy Shelton, and this is where the rubber meets the road in terms of analyzing the impact of the Fed these last 100 years and deciding what we can do to prevent the further undermining of our economy's performance and our nation's founding precepts, because both are threatened by monetary policy that plays favorites, rewarding those who reap gains in their portfolios while stiffing those who live off their paychecks. Whatever happened to equal treatment under the law? Ah, that's the rub. Monetary policy is not determined on the basis of law or even any kind of rule. It's wholly discretionary. Moreover, the Fed's biggest beneficiary is the U.S. government itself. Given that the supposed monetary stimulus of quantitative easing has proved mostly illusory for the private sector, a case could be made that the primary role of the Fed these days is to function as an in-house purchaser of treasury debt. No wonder people are not only discouraged about future economic prospects, they are demoralized by a Federal Reserve determined to keep interest rates at zero and inflation rates at 2%, even when the very essence of free market capitalism relies implicitly on conditions precisely the opposite. A stable price level, a reliable money unit, these are necessary to empower individuals to make rational financial decisions. And the prospect of earning a positive return as the reward for sacrificing consumption today to provide the financial seed corn that will one day yield a greater economic harvest. It's that return on savings that reinforces the essential morality of investing in the future, of believing in the future. Democratic capitalism embraces that optimism, but the Fed's zero interest rate policy makes suckers out of savers. It fosters a let's eat, drink, and be merry cynicism that is ultimately self-consuming and self-defeating. So what can be done to bring about a thorough reconsideration of the Fed's role, not only in our economy, but as an agency of government and a democratic society ostensibly devoted to free markets and free people? Is the Fed actually undermining real economic growth and entrepreneurial confidence in the future even as it attempts to fine-tune and imagine trade-off between price stability and unemployment. Our three panelists are uniquely gifted to explain why we need fundamental reform and how best to launch that process, most notably through a national monetary commission that would comprehensively review the impact of the Fed's policies on the performance of the U.S. economy evaluate potential alternative approaches, and recommend a course going forward. Personally, I cannot imagine a more important undertaking, undertaking for our nation and for the world. The very survival of free market capitalism is at stake. Thus, we are especially honored to have, as our first speaker, the man responsible for what now stands as the most well-thought-out and promising proposal on the table for bringing about real change. Kevin Brady is not afraid to challenge the assumptions, the policies, and the practices of the Federal Reserve, believing, as he does, that we owe a greater allegiance to the Founding Fathers, who believed in securing and preserving the purchasing power of the U.S. dollar. As Chairman of the Joint Economic Committee, his legislation to create a bipartisan Centennial Monetary Commission could have tremendous influence, launching a congressionally mandated review of the economic consequences of the Fed's actions, the conclusions of which might well change our monetary destiny. H.R. 1176 is a calm and cogent appeal for a well-balanced commission to conduct a study of monetary policy and its effects but make no mistake, this is a politically courageous and prescient initiative, as well as a deeply principled one. 
Chairman Brady, with pleasure, I invite you to the podium. Judy, thank you uh, very much for the kind introduction, but more importantly, just thank you for all the work that you're doing in monetary policy as, as, uh, in the Atlas Economic Research Foundation. And, and your insight to us, to me personally, and, and our Joint Economic Committee staff has been hugely helpful as we look for that right path forward. So thank you very much. I'm really thrilled to be on the same panel with Mr. O'Driscoll, Mr. Ranson, and because the time is exactly right to be having this discussion. And I, uh, like many of you, appreciate Cato's leadership uh, in this monetary conference year after year uh, and the role John Allison has an interest in this. It is um, uh, now everyone um, uh, has the courage to venture where you venture. Uh, these are important. Uh, this is an important, critical issue. And uh, these types of opportunities to, to visit and hear the freshest ideas and the reasons for real change uh, just... Um, Hop, uh, happened too little. So thank you all for being here. Um, this is, by every measure, a disappointing economic uh, recovery. Um, if this this is the weakest recovery uh, post-1960, uh, if this were just, we have highlighted on the Joint Economic Committee the growth gap, the fact that the difference between this recovery and just the average recovery since, since 1960 is significant and growing larger. So we're missing now uh, over a trillion dollars from America's economy. We're missing over four million jobs uh, from an average recovery. And you think, well, those are numbers and uh, those are uh, macro approaches, but if you take it down to our families, what it means that, is that while Wall Street has been roaring, a lot of people along Main Street have been left behind. And the average family of four today is missing more than $11,000 from their real disposable income, $11,000 uh, that could go toward uh, their housing, their dreams, their education, uh, paying for higher health care costs under the Affordable Care Act. Um, there's a big role here, and they've been left behind in a major way. I want to see Wall Street do well, but I want to see Main Street do well uh, 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 just as importantly. Um, in our current monetary policy, uh, is really tilting the playing field in favor of Wall Street and away from average working families in America. The Fed's monetary policy, in my view, has harmed American families and Main Street. Uh, seniors and savers, especially in my town hall meetings, uh, they feel they've been harmed by the actions of the Fed, keeping the federal funds rate at zero bound for uh, the past five years, building excess liquidity, uh, on the Fed's balance sheet from uh, quantitative easing. That's kept interest rates uh, at below market levels. So, so masked, uh, a dangerously high federal deficit. It's uh, discouraged savings. I think pushed American families into riskier, often inappropriate assets. Uh, open market policy policies have also created the conditions that might create the next financial bubble in stocks, which could devastate retirement accounts. Private sector business investment, which is key to job creation, uh, has likewise been hampered by the economic uncertainty from these policies. Um, the benefits today of quantitative easing in the real marketplace, in my view, are at zero, and the risks continue to grow. And we live now in a world, uh, what I would call the opposite market. When the jobs numbers come in each month or the the quarterly economic uh, uh, numbers come in. Uh, if they're bad, the market rallies because Fed stimulus will continue. Now, that can't be the sign of a healthy recovery here, either here in the United States uh, or globally. We always get challenged with the issue of inflation. How can this be bad if inflation hasn't yet uh, surfaced? But the fact is, there's three factors that have kept inflation in check so far. One is, you know, fear of another financial crisis had led, has led banks to increase excess reserves. Families and businesses uh, have paid off and continue to pay off their debt, reducing the demand for new loans. And banks have been reluctant to make new loans given the uncertainty uh, over Dodd-Frank in, in, within the banks in our community, both local banks, community banks, and the regional banks. Um, uh, they are not moving forward uh, with lending uh, in, in any significant 
But now that the fear of another crisis is receding and deleveraging has largely run its course, at some point we will see an uptick in lending. It, it, will, it will occur. And the excess reserves on the Fed's balance sheet are the fuel for inflation. And as you know, inflation is just um, terribly destructive to prosperity. Uh, it, it robs uh, the, the paychecks uh, and wallets from working families. And the net worth of, of many Americans will uh, significantly decline. Which really brings us to the point um, that we have been trying to forward in the discussion on monetary policy. I think the need for the Centennial Monetary Commission is now. I'll tell you, I'm not a big fan of commissions, but at this point, 100 years into the Fed's existence, uh, we are well overdue for a thorough review of the structure and goal of our nation's monetary <clears throat> policy. You know, as you know, originally the Fed's mission was to provide an elastic currency to combat seasonal financial issues, yet now the Fed's mission has grown over the years, and today among many lawmakers and some policymakers in Washington, New York, the Fed should manage, in their view, nearly every aspect of the U.S. economy. Others, like myself, think the Fed should create a financial climate where the market's allowed to work. The Fed doesn't pick winners and losers, especially among the credit markets. And families can have some confidence that their hard work and their savings will be preserved through maintaining the purchasing power of the dollar uh, over time. Um, that, in my view, is the foundation for the strongest economic growth for this country. And in the Joint Economic Committee, as we've really looked hard at a basic question, which is how, what do we do today to ensure America has the strongest economy in the world for, through the 21st century? How do we have another second American century? Not only is it critical to have fiscal policy right, it's absolutely critical we have monetary policy uh, right as well. And so in a commission like this, you start with what, what are the characteristics? What is the design of, of a commission that produces a solid result? And first, uh, it has to be uh, uh, open process and what I would call brutally bipartisan. Uh, it has to be um, equally balanced between parties, equally balanced be between policymakers within Congress and bright minds uh, uh, and thinkers outside of Congress. Uh, it needs to be uh, what I would say uh, is a fair fight of uh, the best and brightest ideas on monetary policy going forward. Uh, in the Centennial Monetary Commission that we've introduced now with 29 uh, co-sponsors and the interest continues to grow, uh, it would first start by looking backward over the first 100 years of the Fed, reviewing uh, America's economic performance since the Fed's creation in terms of output, employment, and price, and financial stability. All points of view would be discussed with respect to the proper role and vision for our central bank, the desirability of adopting price level, inflation, or uh, nominal GDP targeting, uh, and looking at monetary policy rules, or the gold standard. Back again to that fair fight of ideas about the role that the central bank uh, in monetary policy should play. And then perhaps most importantly, the role of the commission is to look forward, uh, to recommend uh, to Congress a course for U.S. monetary policy going forward, a course that would include recommendations on what is the right legislative mandate for the central bank, what is the best operational regime going forward, and, and what are the limits to securities and and, and purchases in the open market operations of the Fed. We have often heard, um, I, I've often heard, as we've, as we've discussed the Fed and, and, and its role and its mandate in operations and rules-based versus discretionary, uh, we are uh, often told uh, that this is um, uh, some extreme view toward the Fed. This is really a, an effort to abolish the Fed, to, uh, take it over and, and do something horrible with it. And the truth of the matter is, on the 100th birthday of this institution, and given the financial crisis that we have been through and the extraordinary measures that have been taken by the Fed, can anyone tell me when there is a more appropriate time to review this Fed 
than right now. In the past 100 years or perhaps in the next 100 years. Uh, and I'm hopeful that the, through this process that we can re-engage um, not just the best minds uh, in, in the most diverse uh, thinking about the Fed, but I, I'm hopeful that we can re-engage Congress uh, in their constitutional role in this issue. Not in a way that, we, that, that they enjoy today, which is, um, this is a technical phrase, but Congress has a pretty sweet deal right now. And so does the president. The economy's good, we take credit for it. The economy's not so good, we turn to the Fed and say, you've got to do something. The truth of the matter is that that's not the type of healthy relationship we need. That's not the type of role the Congress should play. Uh, and what I see back home, uh, because I, I live back home in Texas with my wife and our two boys. Uh, I, one of the ways I hold myself accountable to my constituents, I, I hold a lot of town hall meetings, about 50 a year, uh, which is what I'm sort of known for back home. And, and what's been fascinating and I think encouraging is that since the financial uh, crisis, average people from average walks of life are raising their hands at my town hall meetings and asking who is the Federal Reserve, and, and why can they do what they're doing? I think that's a great sign, frankly, and long overdue, of a healthy curiosity and interest of not only who are they and what they're doing, but those people are affecting my life. And they are, in a way that, frankly, most families can't imagine. I'm hopeful the Centennial Monastery Commission can help bring the role of the Fed to life so, so real people living real lives and facing real problems can understand just what those decisions do to them. Because I think we pull back that curtain. We have this healthy, constructive, thoughtful discussion. We can find a way forward for the central bank, for the Fed, that actually plays a role that helps enhance the opportunities for families in America. And again, uh, now uh, is the time to move forward. Thank you. Chairman Brady, thank you so much for your presentation and for your leadership. Thank you. We will now have the privilege of hearing from Gerald O'Driscoll, who served as vice president at the Dallas Fed and was staff director of the Meltzer Commission on International Financial Institutions. Jerry is a true intellectual champion of the sound money movement. He's that rare individual able to bridge the gap between scholarly discourse and common sense logic. Through his powerful op-eds, he's been instrumental in forging public appreciation for the importance of monetary reform. And in his remarks today, Jerry will present a compelling case for rule-based reform and will explain how to move from talk to action. Jerry. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Him for inviting me once again to speak here. And I am going to make the case for fundamental monetary reform. Um, and I think the time is ripe. I agree with Congressman Brady. This year's Cato Monetary Conference is bookended by two others. Uh, two weeks ago, a number of us were up at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for a conference on a similar topic. And uh, there have been a number of others. I'm going to an international meeting of a normally state group of uh, Europeans um, who pick a theme for each of their meetings. And this year, the topic is provocatively titled Central Banks versus Freedom. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Uh, and if some of you want to follow this topic online, Cato Unbound, I'm in Cato Unbound, which will be up for the whole month, I have the principal or lead essay and the comments are from, again, participants here, Larry White, Scott Summer, and Jerry Jordan. So you can kind of continue the conversation online. Um, you, there's a, and I discuss this in the paper. There's a, a long history of monetary commissions in the United States. And for better or for worse, we don't get fundamental change in our monetary and banking institutions except through a commission because monetary policy and monetary and banking institutions are complex and they're not easily dealt with in the normal uh, commission hearing, com sorry, hearing process. And uh, the commission, as 
Congressman Brady says gives a chance for the battle of ideas to be fought out at. Now, on the issue of fundamental monetary reform, uh, I usually get asked rather early in the process, uh, surely you don't think there's any chance for abolishing the Fed or some going back to the gold standard or that is anything fundamental. And the answer is, if you mean in the next election cycle, no. But uh, the best case I can make for pursuing fundamental principles and considering fundamental change to existing institutions is one that Alan Meltzer gives. And he says that uh, for years, Milton Friedman and a very small band of uh, people argued against the military draft at a time when it was unthinkable the military draft would ever, ever end. Then there came a time where the political forces aligned and a president fighting a troubled war and in trouble on other issues, Richard Nixon, saw, was willing to do something big. And if there had been, not been people like Milton Friedman uh, planning for the end of an institution that was unthinkable that it would end, then when the, the political moment came, there were no ideas out there. So I think that's why Cato does the, has these kinds of conferences and why this commission is a good idea. Now, the most basic distinction in, in talking about monetary institutions is between rules and discretion. And uh, we've already heard about that today from a number of speakers. I want to come at it from a different angle. And that is, it's, it's very hard to consider what a, re, a pure discretionary regime would be, because it would mean that the monetary policies makers would basically wake up every morning and engage in some kind of random behavior. Otherwise, you could, you could begin by observation to discern that they were following some procedures. So there's some kind of minimal rule going on. And, and some years ago, uh, David Fand, who used to be a regular here, and we miss him, um, uh, did a paper on this issue. And he said, of course the FOMC has a rule. Here's the rule, quoting David Fan: The only rule governing this process is that at each point in time, those who are responsible for monetary policy choose the convenient and expedient thing to do, close quote. <laughs> now, I think that's such a minimalist rule, we'll call that discretion. So then the, the alternative has to be another rule. Okay. Now, we heard, and I won't belabor it, a lot about the 100-year history of the Fed's performance, and I don't think, it, I don't think it's very enviable. Uh, periods of monetary stability, and, and I'm relying here on the three-volume uh, History of the Fed by Alan Meltzer. This kind of summarizes it. Periods of monetary stability get down to relatively few years, and it turns out in each case there was a rule that the Fed was following. Um, and the, there were several years in the 1920s in which uh, we could describe it as monetary stability. Uh, but of course, the Fed was governed by a modified gold standard, the post-World War I gold standard. So that was a rule that was followed. Then the post-accord period of the 1950s, and then finally the Great Moderation, which is not so well defined, but started somewhere in the 80s and ended in the mid-2000s. As I said, in each period, the Fed was following a rule, modified gold standard in the first period. Um, and in the last period, it's, and this is controversial, it followed something called the Taylor Rule. What went on in the 1950s? We already heard about this because uh, one uh, author, one presenter, suggested that the 1950s was a high water mark for the Federal Reserve, and it was because it had gained a degree of independence under the Treasury Accord. Well, I think what went on in the 1950s is a lot simpler. Uh, there was a deficit hawk president, Dwight Eisenhower, who once the Korean War ended, ran budgets that were very close to being balanced and even a couple of small surpluses were produced. Um, so it was not a test of Fed independence. Any central bank could conduct good policy under those conditions. And last year's monetary conference, my colleague Tom Cargill and I argued, the decade of the 1950s does not um, provide evidence that the Federal Reserve was independent, but simply that it wasn't being challenged by fiscal deficits. Implicit, well, it's not implicit in that paper, we're explicit. 
that there is fiscal dominance and central banks react when there's deficits and when there are none, they have freedom to uh, conduct good policy. So the brief periods of superior Federal Reserve performance buttress the findings of rule-based models. Uh, now, the, the fact that there were three rules and each of these three rules corresponded to reasonable monetary stability, not perfection, suggests there might be more than one rule that works, but a rule is needed. Okay, um, so in terms of the broader history, I think is presented very well by George Selden this morning. I'm just really reminding you of what he, found, what he presented, is the Federal Reserve uh, has done terribly on prices and its record on employment hasn't been that good or, or, or any measure of real variables like uh, the variability of uh, real output growth. Um, and and I, I don't think the record indicates one of two things. Either the Fed placed next to no emphasis on prices, because prices have gone up by 23 times since the founding of the Fed, or it doesn't know how to do it, one or the other, except during these periods when it followed a rule, which again reinforces my argument for a rule. Only when inflation levels get very high, as under the Volcker era, one condition, their inflation gets very high, there's strong public outcry against it, and you have a president or presidents who are willing to support a Fed chairman like Volcker to do very unpopular things, which remember Carter appointed him and Volcker warned him he wasn't gonna like what, what he was gonna do, and then of course Reagan. The problem is that without a rule, the Federal Reserve will always be buffeted by shifting political winds, and uh, fiscal deficits is one important uh, political wind. Yeah. Um, and it'll be subject to political demands that it focus credit, channel credit to favor political institutions. We already also heard about this today, uh, such as housing. It's rules that enable central banks in, to behave independently. If they're governed by rules, then they can resist political pressure. If they want... The, if they want discretion, they lose independence. And I think that's, that's what Cargill and I argued last year, and I argued again today. Now, where do rules come from? I've talked about three rules in which some kind of tolerably good Federal Reserve policy emerged. Again, just to remind you, the modified gold standard of the 1920s, one. Two, a fiscal rule, balanced budget of the 1950s under Eisenhower. And three, a Taylor rule that seemed to explain the great moderation. Though that, I agree, is subject to controversy. It's too, we're too close to it to be sure about that. And then the fourth is the pre-Fed rule from which we heard about uh, from George Selgin this morning. Um, now, what are, what's my attitude toward free banking? In its simplest terms and at the most general level, Free banking or competitive banking is a system of banking without a central bank, but that's the obvious point. What's really important about free banking is that it's a system of monetary freedom and competition and issue of currency. So the money and banking systems are the product of market forces. The rules that emerge, see there are rules, but they emerge in a process of competition, uh, meet the market test. They are the product of an evolutionary, the same evolutionary process as at work in markets for goods generally. Um, so what I take from, the big lesson I take from the free banking literature is, where do monetary rules come from? As much as possible, they should come from markets. And by the way, I think Scott Sumner and I agree on that. We've been together just as I said two weeks ago. That's where we should start, market-generated rules. So we look at things that have worked, or we look at rules that we learn from institutions that have worked well. All right, what I want to do is finish on, a, on, on strategy, just briefly. For 31 years, Cato has hosted an annual monetary conference. Under Jim Dorn's direction, it has become an indispensable intellectual assembly for all those interested in ideas and analysis of monetary issues. He has been Catholic in the sense of universal in his choice of topics, particularly when viewed over the course of three decades. 
He has provided intellectual diversity and monetary debates available nowhere else. And I, I think that's unchallenged. You can't go to a monetary conference elsewhere and get the range of debate you get here, especially measured over years. The question I want to ask is how do we get from discussions of issues to a reform plan? How do we get from talk to action? The competition of ideas at Cato has made the conference a success. What I propose is taking up some of those ideas and moving forward with them. And I think in the process of moving forward, you will shed some, maybe add some, but shed some. In my talk thus far, I discussed what has worked and not worked historically. I do it more in the paper than in the talk. What has not worked historically in bringing about change, for better or worse, in monetary arrangements. The Brady Bill is one a step in the right direction. I also discussed a range of monetary regimes that seem to work. And they share one feature, reliance on a rule. To get from talk to action, I propose that those committed to actual monetary reform need to meet regularly along the lines of the Shadow Open Market Committee, but not to discuss current monetary policy under an existing monetary regime, but to meet regularly to discuss plans for a new monetary regime. Now, we are not at the point that people were in 1910 when we can get to this goal in one grand event by sneaking away to an obscure island where no precedent is available. I don't think places like that exist anymore anyway. <laughs> Um, so again, my model is the shadow open market committees. These meetings would need to be run under the auspices of an institution, and I suggest, why not Cato? These meetings would complement, not substitute, for all the other monetary events, such as the ones I was discussing that are going on now or are going to happen in a couple of weeks. Um, and I would view these meetings as a precursor or background to the Centennial Monetary Commission. Well, anyway, I hope my idea, uh, my, uh, this adds to the mix of ideas and possibly a plan of action. Thank you. Sorry, I, I think it's a great idea. Yeah. We should move forward with it. Um, I also appreciated that observation about when central banks have discretion, they lose political independence. And now we have the good fortune to be hearing from David Ranson, who boldly asks the $4 trillion question, would the United States be better off without monetary policy? I think you will be most impressed by his research, as was I, his illuminating charts and graphs, his analysis, and his conclusion. With advanced degrees from Oxford and the University of Chicago, and as head of the prestigious investment research firm, H.C. Wainwright & Company, Economics, Inc., David Ranson brings tremendous insight and perspective to the task of framing and answering the essential question of whether monetary policy is helping or hurting the economy. David. Does this turn on the slides? Uh, yes, they're already there. Okay. And we go this way. Well, it's a great honor to talk on a panel of such might. And I, I'm... Uh, Delighted that you invited me. My field of specialization is investment strategy. It's not monetary policy. Uh, I'm interested in investigating empirically how the prices of financial assets behave and how they relate to each other. So it's quite quantitative. Naturally, much of the behavior of financial assets or investments is related to public policy, especially monetary policy. So I'm automatically in the business of trying to quantify uh, monetary policy itself and its effects, or its, what it relates to, what its implications are. And I am here to support the idea of very fundamental monetary reform. I was going to say, uh, wouldn't it be nice if we had a sunset law governing all government agencies whereby 
on the 100th birthday, they were automatically <laughs> disappeared. And we had to design them all over again. I think the results of uh, the work I've done over a few years, and you'll find it very simple, uh, do reinforce the case for getting the monetary system out of the political sphere. But that, I suppose, is impossible, but it's my impossible dream anyway. The interplay between the Fed and the economy has produced a long historical record, and study of the record should help to answer some highly topical questions. But when you look at the academic journals, I, I, don't, I can't read them, and uh, I don't know anyone who can anymore. I think we have to go back to basics, and I want to devote my time here to sharing with you some of the nuts and bolts the, what I call the simple empirics of the, a case against the Fed. I'll be, I'll be talking about this one first. I want to show you some very simple slides. Uh, or they are, um, I hope they're simple. Um, they're, the simple. they're as simple as I can get them to be, let's put it that way. To address this question, is it historically true that active monetary policy has tended to result in lower inflation or more stable growth. Uh, many of the previous speakers have already addressed these questions. I want to show you some nuts and bolts that could be part of a, a, a brief that uh, shows uh, empirically the answers to those questions. Now, early in the 1950s, the Fed became active in pushing short-term interest rates up and down by operating openly in the market for federal funds. So monetary policy sort of began in a quantifiable way then. Actions were motivated by the desire to maintain a stable price level, at least originally, and then other desires got involved. But oddly enough, in practice, there's been a closer connection between the conduct of monetary policy and the path followed by the real economy. If we are looking for simple, easy uh, correlations, we find it shows up most obviously in terms of real economic growth and not inflation. The, there's been th this connection between the conduct of monetary policy and the path followed by the real economy is two components. And this chart, this, it's a rather ambitious chart, is to show both at the same time. One is the familiar inverse relationship between year-to-year -year changes in the short-term interest rate and economic growth in the following year. The other part of the link is harder to interpret because it's a positive correlation between movements in the economy and the interest rate on a contemporaneous basis. And you can see them both in this first figure in the form of a bar chart. What we're doing is dividing the history of annual movements in the Fed funds rate into one group of years in which it increased substantially, another group of years in which it was lowered substantially, and then an intermediate group. You can't think of any simpler way to go about it than this. The bars show the average growth of real GDP for each of these groups of years, both contemporaneously and in the year following. And we see they're both correlations, an inverse one and a positive one, roughly of the same magnitude. It's a bit of a puzzle. But it, it follows a, an, an ingenious idea called the last call at the bar. And as I would explain it, news that the interest rate environment is going to be higher in the future induces a gain in economic activity in the present. That would give you both correlations. In other words, a rise in the Fed funds rate brings forward economic activity that would otherwise have occurred in the following or subsequent years. And the result is back and forth movement in the economy, which after the dust has settled, is going to leave the level of GDP roughly unchanged. So an interest rate shift apparently creates a ripple in the longer term growth of the economy, the path of the economy, but only a ripple. Now, that's true as far as it goes, but it's only true to a first approximation. From similar data, we can infer what lasting effect on the economy the Fed's actions in moving short-term interest rates up and down have. And a lasting and adverse effect 
is actually implied by the chart you see in front of you, the average responses. When the Fed increases short rates a great deal, the annualized two-year growth rate of real GDP in the chart is 1.5. You get that by taking the average of 3.64 and minus 0.61. That's the cases where the interest rate rises a great deal. In the opposite case, where the Fed lowers short-term rates by a great deal, the average of the two results is 2.5%, the average of 1.11, 3.94. But the average in the intermediate situations, where the change in rates is quite small, is 3.3. So 1.5, 2.5, 3.3. What I gather from that is that the not only tight monetary policy, but also easy monetary policy reduces the economy's size. Now, figure two is a different way to go about the same problem. What effect on economic growth over a longer time frame does moving interest rates up and down have? And in this chart, looking at monthly moves up and down in interest rates measured by volatility. The volatility of the interest rate is highest in the red line, lowest in the green line, intermediate in the blue line, and we look at a one-year effect, and then there's a delay of two years, and what we find is that the lowest volatility is associated with the highest growth, the highest volatility with the lowest growth. Pretty much common sense to me, it's an inverse relationship between activity on the part of the Fed and the growth of the economy. Now, both figures imply that moving interest rates up and down will reduce economic growth, whatever the temporary effects might be. But these two figures I've just shown you are not showing you the current relationship between Fed policy and the economy. It's a bit more complicated because we only see there the historical effects. The, the uh, next figure shows the influence of the Fed's short-term rate actions, uh, coupling both of these correlations I was mentioning together over a longer period of time. And you can see that the influence of the Fed has evolved and, in fact, greatly diminished as time has gone by. It's a bar chart showing the correlations between various... Excuse me, yes, uh, that, that, excuse me, forget that. In fact, the rate of decline suggests that it, the relationship between Fed interest rate policy and the economy's growth, this ripple I spoke of before, has essentially disappeared more than a decade ago. It's history now. And one explanation might be that the private sector learned over time that why ripple itself uh, if you're going to end up pretty much in the same place down the road? It's a matter of learning what the implications, the meaning, the significance, uh, the intention of Fed policy is. And once you absorb all of that, you don't respond to it anymore. That's one interpretation. Now, the next test looks at inflation, uh, which doesn't show such a sharp correlation with Fed policy, but there is one. We're looking here for evidence that the Fed's short-term rate movements were effective in the intended purpose of holding inflation down because they were effective, clearly, at one time in amplifying or causing business cycles. Now, all the correlations I'm showing here are positive. A rate increase on the part of the Fed is associated with higher inflation in the current and subsequent year. A rate cut is associated with lower inflation. So it's a positive correlation. And the most appealing explanation would be reverse causation that the Fed tends to raise rates when inflation is a serious problem and to lower them otherwise. Whatever is the right explanation, there isn't any actual evidence here or anywhere else that I know of that inflation is alleviated when the Fed raises rates. Now I'd like to get to be more modern and turn to quantitative easing, current monetary policy. Well, QE is a new phenomenon but the idea of debt monetization is very, very old. 
And uh, people often say we can't test whether QE has favorable or unfavorable effects because there is no history. I disagree with that. We can test the effects uh, historically from the monetization of debt. It's just a smaller scale operation that was conducted in the past. We're doing it now on such a larger scale. Um, but we can still say something about what history has to teach about whether quantitative easing or debt monetization has improved the growth rate of the economy and whether it's had inflationary effects. And you've all seen graphs like this one where the monetary base jumps in 2008 and 2009 and uh, money in circulation uh, is only drifting up. There's not much response in the part of money in circulation. The very little of the new bank reserves created by the Fed's extraordinary purchases have surfaced in the form of money balances held by individuals and businesses. Now, the next figure uses uh, post-war data. We could go back to 1918 to do this to illustrate the contemporaneous correlation between annual changes in the monetary base and changes in various indicators of economic growth. And I, I've got GDP in there, of course, industrial production, but I've also considered the stock market to be an indicator, more distant, uh, but another indicator of economic growth. And all three indicators gave, give the, us the same story. If this relationship reflects a causative connection from the Fed to the economy, it implies that easy monetary policy hurts the economy rather than helping it. And that would be consistent with what we saw with the interest rate evidence before. Now, figure seven is parallel to figure six, and it shows similar bar chart. Uh, how much inflation do you get when the Fed monetizes a lot of debt? And how much do you get when the Fed is very slow at monetizing the debt? And here we do get a positive correlation. Uh, and it's rather uh, sensitive if you use the price of gold as an indicator of inflation, which is about the most sensitive indicator you could use. It's an enormous impact from quantitative easing. So putting it all together, here's the simplest interpretation I can come up with that reconciles all the evidence in what I've been mentioning and any, any other evidence I've looked at as well from either interest rates or the monetary base. Easy monetary policy has inflationary consequences, but any use of monetary policy, easy or tight, tends to result in a slower economy. Well, um, David, I find your charts very informative and, and striking. And, and now, because... Yes. This group has proved to be such a disciplined, rules-based panel. <laughs> we have time for a few questions. So, yes, sir. Is, mo is monetary policy or regulation a bigger economic factor? In. It, could you repeat? Did you say is monetary policy or regulation a bigger factor? I mean, uh, I meant to ask a bigger factor in economic growth or lack thereof. Who would like to take that? I'll take a run at it. Um, I think fiscal policy and monetary are equally important. Uh, one can offset the other, both in a good way and in a bad way. Uh, I think, you know, visiting with businesses both across the country, those who compete internationally and back home, uh, clearly, fiscal issues, higher taxes as a drag on the economy. This just tsunami of new regulation, three highest years in, in modern history of new regulation having a huge impact back home on job creation. The Affordable Care Act, Dodd-Frank, others, um, without a doubt, a drag uh, on the economy. Those are the mo more readily apparent roadblocks to this recovery. But I think uh, if you look deeper... You see the uncertainty created by the Fed in these extraordinary actions, um, the potential future risks. Um, I, I think monetary policy, each and every month we continue these extraordinary actions, becomes a bigger part of the reason we don't have the certainty 
for businesses to take that capital off the sidelines and, and, and reinvest in a way that create jobs. Um, next question. Um, Bert Ely, a banking monetary policy consultant. Uh, a question uh, primarily for uh, Chairman Brady, but uh, the other two panelists may want to jump in. Uh, should the Fed be in the business of uh, trying to influence interest rates? <clears throat> Let's let the others go first. <laughs> well, the whole burden of the evidence I was trying to portray in the simplest possible way was that having interest rates move up and down results in the economy moving up and down, and worse than that, a slower economy over longer periods of time. That's just the empirical relationship between the two. There could be other interpretations, but my interpretation is that the causation runs from pushing interest rates to the economy, uh, the economy's response. Volatility is bad. Volati yes, as you say, volatility is bad. George. Um, the next question, sir. I'm Alex Salter from George Mason University. Uh, this question is primarily for Congressman Brady, but I would like to hear the panel's thoughts on this also. Uh, Nobel laureate James Buchanan has argued that questions about monetary regimes are fundamentally constitutional questions. And so I would like you to uh, share your thoughts, if you could, about the political plausibility of achieving and the general desirability of a constitutional amendment specifying a monetary policy rule. Thank you. Um, I... Couple thoughts. One, uh, I do think interest rates. Well, to the earlier question, you know, I think if you set the right mandate for the Fed, in, in my view, price stability. Uh, if you set the right uh, rules, uh, create, hold the Fed accountable to that, limit their ability to impact uh, uh, the credit market, uh, open uh, the open market uh, voting across the economy, a number of those reforms, I think that is that is the very best way to create economic growth uh, in the nation. And so interest rates, I think, do play a role in achieving that mandate and focusing on it. Ken, um, to your point, I I'm always reluctant to uh, amend the Constitution, um, frankly. Uh, it should be an extraordinary um, um, principle that you, not a policy, the Constitution is not about policy, it's about a principle. And uh, you would have to be very cautious about designing and crafting any constitutional amendment to that regard. One point I think you've landed on is that too many lawmakers, at least up here, don't quite understand they have a constitutional responsibility, you know? Uh, in this area. It's simply been too easy uh, to ignore it, or it's not been as clear what that impact is back home, you know, which always drives, I'll just frankly, drives all elected officials uh, in their actions. Um, I think, uh, to, to Mr. O'Driscoll's point, you know, I love the idea of, of converting the work in the uh, ideas from an annual conference like this into pre-meetings, you know, that really set the table for a commission, actually I think could, could be a great step forward in, in, the, in the attention that goes with that from substantive, credible thinkers in this area could help bring that constitutional role back to members of Congress in a way that perhaps they feel more responsibility to actually act in this area. Does that make sense? Uh, next question in the back. Is that, <laughs> Is that George, please? George. Great. George. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, I have a, uh, my question is for Mr. Ranson. Uh, I, I think all of you can, who don't know me know from my talk, I'm the last one to want to turn my back on evidence that the Fed isn't accomplishing anything. I'd love to, I'd love that kind of thing reinforces my own points. At the same time, though, I'm not so sure that I'm finding your evidence compelling, and I worry about evidence that's not, not so. Um, you're, you've done simple correlations. And the other thing nobody who knows me would think I am is, is, is a, 
an econometrics jock or anything like that, but you've done simple correlations. You haven't controlled for any variables except you've just looked at how two things uh, move together or in opposite directions. And um, you've made some remarks about how causation can go either way, and that's all well and good. Uh, but, but without controls, I don't see why one would find any connections uh, between the federal funds rate and the uh, other variables you look at, but it doesn't prove anything much. Uh, but to put the point in a more specific way, there's a great Swedish economist, Nutvik Sell, talked about uh, the relationship between what matters in monetary policy is not the absolute level of the real interest rate that the monetary authority sets, but the position of that rate relative to something called the natural rate, which is unobservable. But you can't tell, and Scott Sumner has also been pushing this point, pushed it earlier today, you can't tell from the mere position of the real interest rate, federal funds or otherwise, whether that means policies tight, loose, or anything else. You could tell if you knew what the natural rate was by looking at the difference between the natural and the actual rate, but you don't do that. So I, I don't think we can infer anything from, from those simple correlations about whether the Fed's doing good, bad, nothing, or everything. Uh, I guess that was a comment. <laughs> um, but I, th I think it, it uh, uh, begs for a response from David, please. Yeah, well, uh, I don't purport to prove anything. I'd say that we've got to learn to walk before we can run, that complicated correlations, say multiple correlations, are more difficult to interpret the more complicated they are. So although the simpler correlation doesn't tell us anything we can walk away to and put it, the money in the bank. It's something that challenges us to explain. And I'm just looking for simple explanations at this stage. I'm still trying to walk. And um, I'd say anyone who purports to understand how the monetary system works and how central banking affects the economy has to have a story that tells us how it is reconcilable with these simple correlations. One last question. Yes. This is a question for Congressman Brady. I was wondering, excuse me, if you could comment on um, the interest on reserves policy, giving the Fed the authority to pay interest on reserves, particularly in the financial services uh, regulatory reform act of 2006 and also the implementation of interest on reserves was uh, speeded up to 2008 during the financial crisis. So I was wondering if you had any thoughts behind that policy, why it was passed and, and what implications it has for the discretion of the federal reserve. Um, I always hesitated to uh, uh, conjecture on why something was passed, at least in this um, within Congress in the last decade or so. Um, to the bigger picture, perhaps, um, as we've looked to the run-up to the financial crisis and the regulatory role that the government played in that, among other factors, but a critical regulatory role, the reaction to the financial crisis from Congress, legislation, frankly, I strongly oppose, and Chairman Hensling does as well, but... Um, and then uh, as a result of that, the impact, you know, back home today where regulation, where looking forward as the economy does eventually pick up, uh, where the Fed will be faced with um, an economy that grows, uh, significant reserves on the books, uh, uh, concern about holding banks back from more lending to, to fuel that, uh, you create what, what I think, Robert, you've described as financial repression uh, going forward. That's a real, that's a real concern. Um, and it, again, comes back to the point that monetary policy has, has real impact. And we ought to, uh, whether in the bigger picture, whether you're an advocate of a dual mandate, a price stability, a, a modern a gold standard, a nominal GDP targeting, you know, all of these ideas about what role the, the bank should play. Um, I'm eager to get to the point where we have that 
you know, public, thoughtful, deep discussion on it because from a regulatory standpoint, we are always chasing the market, never even catching up to it, certainly never ahead of it. So creating the mandate and the rules that go with it, uh, to Mr. O'Driscoll's point, I think creates the best free market um, uh, format for us to prosper. So long answer to short question, but it leads to there's real, real concerns in, in all these areas of regulation. So. Well, we are, we are all looking forward so much to a great closing address by the distinguished scholar and wonderful thinker, Lewis Lehrman. So we'll have to bring this to a close. But I, I want to thank uh, Chairman Brady, especially for staying with us throughout the panel, which I think uh, testifies to your real commitment to this topic and uh, your intellectual depth in discussing it. So we appreciate that. Thanks. And please join me in thanking our superb panel and including David and Jerry.